eternal life. The lawyer, he was testing Jesus. This wasn't a sincere question. He was asking this question to set up a debate. He was sizing up Jesus against his own version of God. And this is a very tricky game that we play. I know so many people have lived for so many years and have tried to answer this one question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? What is, what is my responsibility in this whole thing? How do I make sure that at the end of my days it ends up well for me? I know so many people who think that, well, the, the, the name of the game is to do more good things than bad things. Or some people think, well, if you do more religious things, that's good. Or other people just simply say, well, just be tolerant and it'll all work out. And this is an important question to us, no matter how you cut it. What shall we do to inherit eternal life? Now, at the core of this question is what theologians call legalism. Legalism. This is the idea that Living in line with the law is what makes you innocent before God. Legalism. What does the law say I have to do? What must I do to be saved? What is my responsibility here? And if you live your life dependent upon following the law perfectly, you're going to pay very close attention to what the law says. You're going to actually spend a lot of your time trying to figure out what can and can I not do. So, for example, if God says like we read in the Ten Commandments earlier, keep the Sabbath holy. We hear that if we're legalistic, we go, okay, I'm going to do no work on Sunday, which clearly means I'm not going to punch the clock at my shop and I'm not going to log into my office email. But what about working on the house or in the garden? Maybe it's okay for me to pluck a few cucumbers for dinner tonight, but weeding the garden, probably not. Like, see, this is all an example of legalism. This is a legalistic mindset. How far does the law allow me to go? What can or can I not do? It's extending out the law of God to give black and white answers to what my life should look like. And let's all agree that a lawyer is going to be legalistic. <laughs> of all the people, who's going to care about the law most? It's, it's the lawyer. And he's asking Jesus, give me the formula. What's my responsibility so that life goes well for me? Spell it out for me. And in a move of brilliance, Jesus responds to the lawyer and he turns the table on him. And he says, you, of all people, a lawyer, you know the law. What does it say? It's verse 26. He says, what's written in the law? How do you read it? What's written in the law? How do you read it? I don't know if you've ever been a part of a small group before or a book study. Have you ever, some of you guys are in small groups. A lot of you are in small groups, actually. What's the worst question that comes up in a small group? It's that question, well, what did you get out of it? Or what does this mean to you? Everybody ever been in a small group where, like, that's the question that comes up? That's a terrible way to lead a small group. That, that question has been banned from our campus. You're not allowed in a small group to ask, well, what does that mean to you? And in first glance, we think Jesus is saying, well, what does the law say? What does it mean to you? But that's actually not it at all. He's saying to the lawyer, hey, hey, what does the law say? How do you read it? These are church words that the lawyer would have picked up as temple words. These are words that he would have gathered in the assembly, and they would have said, let's read the words together. Jesus is saying, when you gather in the church, when you gather in the temple, what are literally the words that you say? And notice in verse 27, what he says. Verbatim, he quotes it. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. 
In Matthew's account of Jesus' life, Matthew records another time when Jesus is asked this question, what's the greatest commandment? In Matthew 22, verses 37 to 40, he says this, it says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, for this is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And Jesus here clearly indicates that the, the entirety of the Ten Commandments, which we recited together today, the entirety of all those Ten Commandments rest upon these two ideas. You want to know what the law says? It says, love God, love people. On this, everything else hangs. Because when you love God, you do not have any idols. You do not profane his name. You devote yourself to, to spending time with him, etc. When you love your neighbor, you do not lie to them. You don't cheat them. You don't steal from them. You don't covet them. And so, lawyer, you who know the law of all people, do this and you'll live. That if you want to have eternal life, if you want to make sure that at the end of your days it works out well for you, then here's all you got to do. You just got to love God completely and love your neighbors thoroughly. Luke doesn't really record for us the internal dialogue of the lawyer, but he shows us that this doesn't sit well with him. And you or I could put ourselves in his shoes. We could imagine the internal strife going on inside of him, thinking, how do I get saved? Well, by keeping the law. And I know the law, but I also know myself honestly enough to know that I don't keep the law. And... Actually, the law hasn't made me a better person. It's only made me feel more guilty. And because I know the law and I don't keep the law, I actually really hate the law because it's constantly convicting me and condemning me. And I'm not sure that I can actually be good enough. I've heard this story in our church before. Um, last year, there was a woman who came to Christ uh, in, our, in this church right here in this campus. And things happened in her life. And all of a sudden, uh, just horrible things started befalling her. And she came up to me one day and said, Dan, ever since I started following Jesus, my life has gotten really, really hard. She goes, I don't find any pleasure in cigarettes anymore. I can't go back to the same habits that I used to without feeling guilty. Jesus has kind of wrecked my life. And if we approach it from a legalistic standpoint, the law becomes not freedom, but a burden. And the lawyer is not done with Jesus. Look at verse 29. But he desiring to justify himself, which is totally what we think lawyers do. He said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? What a classic debating technique. Be more specific. Could you give me a definition? Maybe use it in a sentence, Jesus. Do you remember this? It depends on what your definition of is, is. Can I redefine this? Can I find a loophole? Tell me, Jesus, who is my neighbor? The lawyer is going to great lengths to find a loophole to jump through as if heaven has a back door. And this is really how silly we look when we try and justify ourselves to God. We will, on one hand, try and hold up the law as this perfect good standard, which the whole world ought to live by. And we will teach it, we will structure it, we will... We will systematize it, and we will even hold people's feet to the fire on the law. Only to be confronted with the reality that we aren't adhering to the law ourselves. 
When that happens, how quickly do we justify ourselves? We explain away sin. We rationalize breaking the law. We redefine words so that it doesn't seem so bad. We try and compare ourselves, not to God's holy standard, but then to other people. We, we try and find a loophole. And at the core of the lawyer's question, who is my neighbor, is actually a racial prejudice. You see, Jews of this day believed that God had called them to love as their neighbor only their fellow Jews. In Leviticus, this is clearly stated. They had no interest in the affairs of foreigners. And they thought that if they were to love God with all their hearts and love their neighbor with all their hearts, it followed that our neighbors are the people of God, that is, other Jews. And this is an interesting question. Who is my neighbor? This is a great question for us to wrestle with today as we observe the shrinking of the globe. Today, it seems you can follow with great detail stories from around the world. I remember just a couple days ago watching that tragedy in Nice, France. And for whatever reason, I happened to be on my phone at the time that it was going down, and I was on Twitter, and all of a sudden, up popped all of these pictures, one after another, in real time of something that was going on on the other side of the globe, and it felt like I was there watching the chaos happen. And I remember wrestling with this question, how does this impact my life? I mean, how does this tragedy that is so far away actually do anything for me, or is this my neighborhood, what are the extents of my neighborhood? How far does it reach? This is a legalistic question. It's designed to limit my responsibility. It's legalism at its finest. And notice how Jesus answers this question. He tells a story. Look at verse 30. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jer Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, many of you have heard this story before. Have you heard this story before? This is the story of the? Okay, good. So you, you have heard this story. And uh, many people call this a, either a story or a parable. Some people think that it's completely fictional. But Let's not discount the fact that this could have been a real event that Jesus was historically pointing back to and saying, hey, remember that guy who was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among the bandits and the robbers and they beat him and they stripped him and they left him for half dead? And it's very possible that in this day, as Jesus was talking to this lawyer, this lawyer would have sympathized with this issue. We know that the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was incredibly dangerous. It was the type of place that you drive through with your windows up and your doors locked and your radio turned down and your phone already dialed to 911 just so that you, all you got to do is hit that green button. This was the type of neighborhood that this guy was walking through. It was rocky terrain where bandits could hide easily and they could surprise the lonely traveler. And I imagine this lawyer listening to Jesus had walked this very road himself and probably experienced the very fear that everyone else would have been tuned into. And he knew the dangers and he probably felt sympathy for the Jewish man who had befallen such terror. He might have even had friends or family members who had had this fate happen to them. Jesus continues with the story in verse 31. He says, Now by chance a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and he saw it, he passed on by the other side. And doubtless in the crowd this day were priests and Levites standing all around the priests, of all people, should have had compassion on this man. They were the people who worked in the temple. They were bound by the law to perform the rituals of Judaism. 
these were the men who represented the people to God and they helped bring about holiness through the sacrifices given on the altars at the temple. As a part of their commitment to holiness, though, priests were forbidden from touching corpses. So perhaps the priest was thinking, well, I have this commitment to holiness that forbids me from touching something that's dead, and so I'm going to actually just go around to the other side. We could vote, but I think we'd all agree that's probably believing the best about the priest. Because if I can admit something to you from my own heart, as someone who daily serves in God's house, I know how exhausting it is to pour yourself out in ministry. And oftentimes I know when most of the people have gone home and my family's waiting for me at home, there's one thing on my mind and that's let me get out of there and go see my family. Anyone who's ever served in a ministry, anyone who's ever served and poured themselves out knows this feeling, this I've done enough for people today. I've pleased the Lord. I've spent myself loving God in my job. I'm ready for a break. This is a busy road. There's lots of other people coming and going. Surely someone else is responsible to clean up this mess. And I know you don't judge me for that. But we see the priest here sets a very poor example for all of us. And he sets a poor example for the Levite who did the same exact thing. After seeing the priest pass over to the other side of the road, I'm sure the Levite probably assumed, well, goodness, if he, of all people, didn't stop to help out this man, why would I? And then in verse 33, I want you to look at verse 33. Jesus starts going to work on the lawyer. He starts turning the story where no Jewish person would have ever thought to turn it. And he says, but a Samaritan, of all people, a Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came to where he was, and when he saw him, he a Samaritan of all people, had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So you got to know that the Samaritans were second class citizens in this day because they were an interracial people. The disciple John tells us that they worshipped at a different mountain than where the Jews worshipped. And a long rift had existed between the Jews and the Samaritans. If you were a Jew of this day, you looked down on the Samaritans. You boycotted their stores. You made fun of them. You mocked their religious practices. You pitied their doomed future. And you avoided your kids hanging out with their kids. See, Samaritans were accursed. They were outcasts. They were lowlifes. To the Jews, the Samaritans weren't really their race, weren't really their religion, and weren't really their responsibility. They lived in the land next to the Jews, but they might as well just lived, lived on the other side of the world. And Jesus says, a Samaritan of all people, a Samaritan came to the man and saw him as a person and felt compassion and pity for this poor traveler. For Jesus to make the Samaritan the hero of this story surely was controversial for those listening in. It was so convicting to the lawyer even that at the end of the story when Jesus says to him, he says, who of all these people, who was a neighbor to the man, this, this lawyer can't bring himself to even say the word, the Samaritan. He says, the one who had mercy on him. And indeed, 
This Samaritan shows us what it looks like to have mercy on someone. I see in here four ways that the Samaritan gives uh, us an example of mercy, how we can be a neighbor to other people, how we show mercy. I want to just read them off for you sort of quickly. And first, we, we notice through the Samaritan's example that mercy, it sees the need, not the mess. Mercy sees the need, not the mess. Imagine this scene with me for a moment. This mess is gross. A bruised man lying naked in a heap in the middle of the dusty desert road. His eyes are swollen, swollen shut. He has bruises on his body. There's probably a pool of blood coming out of him at some point. This road, it was common for stray dogs to walk up and down and to find roadkill. And perhaps he had a crowd of beasts waiting for him to give up his breath. This man is a mess. This is a disgusting scene. But mercy doesn't obsess over the mess. Mercy looks at the person and sees the need and looks forward to healing. For this beaten man, the need is help, the need is a doctor, the need is compassion. And mercy looks at the situation and says, something needs to be done and I see it. I see what you're going through. And the second thing is that mercy serves. Mercy serves. This Samaritan served this beat up man. He went to him. He didn't cross a road. He approached. He bound up his wounds. He poured on oil and wine, which is the work of what an EMT would have done in that day. He didn't lecture the Jewish man about the dangers of traveling this particular road alone. He didn't try and hand him a copy of the four spiritual laws. He simply served the man and showed mercy. And third, mercy sacrifices. We see this Samaritan. It seems as if Jesus is painting the picture that the Samaritan is traveling by animal and he's going across this road, probably making good time, and he sees the man and he gets off to serve the man. And once he's done bandaging up his wounds, he actually takes his own animal, his means of transportation, the way that he was getting from point A to point B, his way of safety and efficiency, and he takes the beat-up man and he places him on the animal and he leads the animal slowly, treacherously down this road to an end. Isn't it true that mercy always costs us something? In this case, it costs the Samaritan his comfort, his speed, and his safety. But there's a fourth aspect I see in mercy through the Samaritan. It's that mercy spends. Mercy spends. In this case, the Samar this, this good Samaritan spent money on this man who was beat up. He saw, he served, he sacrificed, and he spent. Not only that, he spent an exorbitant amount of money. Two days' wages. In uh, Northwest Indiana, based on stats that you can pull up online, uh, this man spent no less than $390.80 on a complete stranger. Not only a complete stranger, but someone who probably wouldn't have returned the favor if it had been the Samaritan on the side of the road. And yet, he spends. And he opens a tab and he takes a contract with the innkeeper and he says, surely this man's debt is my debt. And I will repay whatever he needs when I come back. When we look at the extent that the Good Samaritan went to show mercy, isn't it kind of lame how we call our random acts of kindness being a Good Samaritan? 
And I think that's because Jesus isn't setting up some sort of random acts of kindness type of life for us to fulfill the demands of the law. Instead, he's showing us how the way that we live out this love God, love neighbor type of life is through a regular, consistent basis of compassion and mercy in our lives. Jesus isn't asking us for a once in a while help the guy stuck on the side of the road with his flat tire type of thing. He's saying, in the way that you live out your life, live out the gospel. In one sense, Jesus is saying, you can serve God all that you want, but if you ignore the hurt in the world, it's almost as if you're ignoring God. And in verse 37, Jesus' final words to this man, they're so simple, but so profound. To the lawyer, Jesus says, go and keep on doing acts of mercy and compassion just like this Samaritan did. And that's the encouragement that Jesus says to all of us here today, to go and be the agents of mercy and compassion in a world of violence and sin. And this is where this passage of scripture gets really complicated for us today. There's a really good chance that you, you heard this story growing up as a kid and the simplicity of this application to go and be the Samaritan. It seems way too simplistic, less sophisticated for your life. Maybe you've been discouraged at your own hypocrisy when it comes to this type of thing and you wonder, I've tried but I've failed. Or maybe all the more, we see the problems in this passage, we see the problems that are evident in this story are still the same problems that we face in our society today. In spite of all of our progress as a society, we still struggle to love our neighbor. And so we ask the question together, well, how is this possible for us? Sure, Jesus, it's a great story and great, great example, but how? And the answer is very simply, it's not. I think that's the point. That in the face of the demands of a lawyer pointing at the law saying, what must I do to be saved? Jesus kind of agrees with him and says, yeah, the standard is way too high. If you want to inherit eternal life, it comes at the cost of an incredible sacrifice, one that seems humanly impossible. And yet in the midst of this law-soaked story, Jesus infuses this message of grace and mercy. He responds to law with grace. And friends, this is what Jesus always does. When the souls of our lives are chapped by the harshness of the law, Jesus' gospel of grace is like a balm that soothes our souls and heals us. It's grace. Because all of us, at one point or another, have been dead in sin. We've been left or abandoned on the side of the road in a mess, needing someone to come along and see our need. And it was Jesus who came to serve us. He came and he sacrificed himself for us. He came and he spent his life to redeem us out of our debt to sin. It's only by grace that we're alive in the Spirit. And you, you, of all people, you ought to know this. Because anyone here who has a relationship with Christ knows grace. You know the futility of keeping commandments. You know the frustration from adhering to a religious system. You know that legalism never saved any part of your family. And yet while we were still dead in our sins, 
Christ graciously and mercifully died for us to fulfill the law and to bring us into God's amazing, saving grace. Of all the people, those who are here today who have been changed by Jesus' grace, we know this, that grace changes everything. And when Jesus says to the lawyer, go and do likewise, he's saying, live the reality of the gospel in our world. And how do you demonstrate your love for God? You love others. And friends, it's the gospel of grace that allows us to stop dissecting and debating who deserves our love and mercy and start asking the question, well, to whom can I be a neighbor today? Who do I see that needs help? How can I serve them and sacrifice for them and spend time and energy and resources on them? I think Jesus uses his gospel to respond to the bondage that we feel of the law. Friends, I think so many of us live our lives stuck in this adherence to what must I do to be saved, and we don't actually see the gospel of grace played out in our own lives. So for the rest of our time, just for the remainder of our short time here together this morning, I just want to look at three arenas of our life that I think this story hints at, where we could be either trapped in the bondage to the law and yet see that God's gospel of grace wants to set us free. Three arenas that Jesus is talking about here for us to live out this life of mercy. The first is the arena of responsibility. The arena of responsibility. That's the first one. At the core of this passage is the question, well, what's my responsibility in life? This is the legalistic question. This is the lawyer's question. This is the priest's heart as he says, that's not my responsibility to care for this guy. This is the Levite's heart as he says, it's not my responsibility to take care of this. Someone else will come along and someone else will clean up this mess. But people whose lives have been changed by compassion and mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ, they are freed from parsing the particularities of the law and they recognize the question is not What's my responsibility? But the person who lives a compassionate, merciful, gospel-centered life simply says, I'll take responsibility. Maybe it's not my responsibility, but I've been changed by the gospel of Jesus to take responsibility for this other person's hurt. I mean, what was it that compelled the Samaritan to take responsibility for this man? It was compassion and mercy. Of all people, he would seem to have the most reason to cross the road. Except mercy and grace, they say, I'll do it. It's my job. I can fill that spot. I can help this person. I can take responsibility. And I wonder who we think takes responsibility for the hurting people today. I wonder how many little things happen throughout our daily lives where we see some need and we think, well, that's the, that's the responsibility of this family. That's the responsibility of this organization. That's the responsibility of someone else. And I hope that person gets better, but I, that's not my job. And isn't this the essence of James, chapter 1, verse 27, that says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep them oneself unstained from the world, to say, I see the needs of those who are hurting and I'm going to take responsibility to make a difference in their lives. And that leads me into the second arena 
that I think Jesus is talking about here. He's hinting at how legalism binds us and his grace wants to free us. The first way legalism binds us is that by his past his responsibility to somebody else and grace says, no, 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 I have the grace to take this responsibility and accept this responsibility. The second arena is this. It's the, re- it's the arena of religion. I think so many of us think that the church is the place that does all of this. So many have placed this responsibility on the corporate church And I know our church often gets well-meaning inquiries into caring for families in need. And I'm not against any of this. We take benevolence offerings every first Sunday of the month. We give away literally hundreds of thousands of dollars here to Northwest Indiana, families who are in need. I'm, I'm for us being a benevolent, loving, gracious, merciful church. But what Jesus doesn't say is the Samaritan took the man to the temple where he got the healing that he needed. The Samaritan, Jesus doesn't say that the priest and the Levite, one grabbed a leg and one grabbed an arm and they brought him back up the hill to the place where it was decided that these types of issues would be resolved. You see, when we deflect the responsibility, when we punt our responsibility to care for the people that God has personally placed in front of us, we are robbing ourselves of seeing the gospel played out in our own lives in miraculous ways. It's like we're crossing over the road and leaving the people that God has placed in our path to somebody else. Out in the foyer here, if you just turn right, there are four posters on this wall. These are the four values of Bethel Church. I uh, share these with anyone who comes through our Discover Bethel class. I share them with all the people who come through any, any environment in our church. We have these four commitments, these four values in our church. They read like this, Scripture. Scripture's our authority. Prayer, we believe that prayer is powerful. The fellowship, we believe that God's people should get together. And then the fourth one is mission. Is that we believe that God has put us not to be missionaries buying a plane ticket to go somewhere else around the world, but to be people who live out the message of the gospel in our communities. It's each believer walking out the door, taking the message of the gospel into the world of need. And and you, of all people, you may feel like a second-class citizen in your community. And you may feel like an outsider in your community. But you, you, of all people, are the one that Jesus has asked to go and do likewise. This works itself out best when we aren't confined to only serve people who are in our church or a part of our own religious system. I mean, it's true that the Jews looked at the Samaritans as somewhat heathens. If you asked a Jew, are the Samaritans going to heaven or hell? You'd say, I don't know. They may be going to heaven. They may be going to hell. Well, are they of the same religion as you? No, 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 they're not. There was such a religious divide between the Jews and the Samaritans. And and friends, how do you take the gospel to people who don't have the same religious beliefs as you? How do you bring the gospel to bear in the life of your friend who is incredibly atheistic and antagonistic about it? Do you set up some sort of philosophical debate where you've well-researched and well-reasoned all your thoughts? Well, this is exactly what the lawyer was doing to Jesus. He was trying to frame a debate. And to all of this, Jesus says, no, 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 no. Don't, don't debate. Just go and show the gospel. One of my favorite stories of the life of D.L. Moody is uh, from the time when he was in Indianapolis. Uh, this is back over 100 years ago. There was a denominational convention in Indianapolis, and Uh, Mr. Moody was there to be a part of that. And one day, the story goes, he called up his friend Iris Sankey. They were the two, like the preacher and the worship leader. It was like Louis Giglio and Chris Tomlin. 
Mr. Moody and Iris Hanky. And they, they, he said, hey, meet me at the street corner here at, at 6 p.m. and I'd like to just do something. And so Iris Hanky shows up and he gets there and Mr. Moody has a soapbox. This is back in the day. And he puts the soapbox down and he tells Mr. Sankey, get up there and start singing. And so Mr. Sankey starts belting out on the street corner in Indianapolis some hymns. All of a sudden, a crowd is gathered around, and Mr. Moody says to everybody, he stops everything and says, hey, if you want to hear more of this, there's an opera house right here. Let's go inside, and let's, let's just go move that way. And so literally hundreds of people move inside the opera house in downtown Indianapolis, and they start hearing the message of Jesus Christ proclaimed by Mr. Moody. Well, this is a denominational conference, and so eventually the delegates from the convention start showing up. And as they do, they look around and see a packed auditorium of of, of, of heathens hearing the message of Jesus. And upon seeing these people walk in, Mr. Moody stopped everything and said, brothers, I'm afraid we have to close. The brethren from our convention are here, and they want to discuss the question, how do we reach the masses? And the point is that how do you bring the gospel to your world? You, you simply do it by showing. Go and be a Samaritan. Go and do acts of mercy. Go and show the gospel to your friends who hate God. Because the gospel of grace frees us from the religious limitations to just serve the people who are like us and believe like us. And it allows us to be compassionate hands and feet of Jesus to those who are not like us. I think the gospel frees us from feeling like it's not our responsibility. It frees us from feeling like we have to serve just those who are of our own religious ilk. And finally, the gospel of God's grace, I think it changes this third way. It changes the way that we live in the arena of racial reconciliation. I mean, we can't get around this fact. For thousands of years, this story has been called the story of the Good Samaritan. I mean, his race is a part of the title. And Jesus shows us that gospel neighboring, it crosses racial roads to come together. Jewish pride was put in its place as their own people disregarded the needs of a fellow Jew and the need that was met then by a Samaritan. And the message is so clear then as it is today that we ought not be defined or limited in our fellowship and in our mercy and compassion for one another, that we only serve those who look like us or sound like us or believe like us or think like us or come from the same country as us. The gospel the gospel calls us to love those who are different than us and to seek their healing and their flourishing just as much as we seek our own. Which means that we aren't given the option to walk by and cross the road when we see racial injustice and intolerance and division in our nation or in our communities. I mean, I look around this room and it's not hard to see that we are a predominantly Anglo-American church. I mean, you can just see it. It's on our faces. But when we as a predominantly white Americans, we watch the news and we hear of thousands of, of our black brothers and sisters being murdered in the streets of Chicago or around the country, we cannot cross the street and just pass by. And when the political context of black lives matter and blue life matter seems to just drive us nuts, and we want to just step back and disengage and walk across the road and let somebody else figure that out and let somebody else enter into that realm and let someone else try and fix our country and just pray that God makes a miracle happen. We cannot punt 
to our culture. We cannot grow weary of the complexities of these situations. We have to, dis- we have to engage in this discussion. We have to engage in dialogue. We have to engage in being part of the solution. And man, I wish I could tell you the stories of people in this church who are doing just that. Police officers who have come and who have made, built bridges into the African-American community to uh, bring healing and restoration. Uh, of people in this room who have, who have helped build communities around the gospel of reconciliation. Why is this so important to Jesus? Why is this so important? It's because we, of all people, have the prince of peace. We, of all people, we have the ministry of reconciliation. And it's our job to champion this cause in the world. It can't be the governments. It can't be the schools. We, of all people, have to lead the way. And friends, if I could just close this way, I would encourage you to know that we, of all churches, need to be this type of church that is comfortable with the discomfort that is actively trying to bring grace and mercy into situations that are racially charged and uncomfortable for us. Over the next couple of weeks, we as a, as a church will be hosting conversations about this exact topic. So I don't want to say too much more, but I want you to say that we need to engage. We can't cross the road and just put our hands up and say someone else will figure it out. We are the church. And quite frankly, no other church in America has four campuses in such diverse areas to see this happen and to see our region changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ than we do. So what I'm asking you, what I think Jesus is asking you, is to today go and serve the world out of the goodness and the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, It's a story that we know very well. This is a message that seems very simple. And we've tried for thousands of years to put it into practice. And we still struggle to love our neighbor. Father, help us to overcome the legalistic hearts that we have. Help us to experience your grace all the more to know the value of your love, to know the freedom that you give, to know the ministry that you want us to have in your name. God, I pray even for our nation as we see racial tension so high. And God, we want to be a church that doesn't shirk our responsibilities. We want to be a community that is actively engaged in your causes. And so God, help us, help us to stay on the side of the road of the need. Help us, like the Samaritan, to see, to serve, to sacrifice, and to spend, all for the glory and for the fame of your Son, Jesus Christ. This is our prayer. This is our desire. Be all about you. Amen.